it's your friendly neighborhood struggling archaeologist back once again to bring you an exciting new episode of the struggling archaeologist's guide to getting dirty this is jenny and i am back for hopefully lucky number 13. so yeah i figured it's kind of ironic this podcast is number 13 and I decided to make it about one of the biggest disasters in history. <laughs> a very unlucky day for many of the residents of the charming little town south of Rome known as Pompeii. That's right, today's episode is about the destruction of the city of Pompeii in 79 AD by the evil Mount Vesuvius. Yes, I did just give the mountain a an anthropomorphic uh, quality. It is evil in my eyes. So, yes. I'm very excited about today's episode. I feel it's weird, weird. This last month especially, I feel like I have just been bombarded by Pompeii. Everywhere I look, it's, it's around me in the universe telling me to talk about it on the podcast. And so I didn't put much thought into what I was doing this month because it was just like, oh, yeah, of course I'm going to talk about Pompeii. Duh. Because there's been news story after news story after news story. There is a movie out right now called Pompeii, which I saw and am very excited to talk about. Uh, and I don't know. It, I just got back from being uh, traveling for the last two months. Got back home. Uh got my mail, I've got the latest archaeology magazine and what's on the cover, but a new story about Pompeii. So yes, I have given in to the peer pressure of the universe and will be speaking about everybody's favorite doomed city of the ancient world, Pompeii, for the rest of the podcast. So without further ado, let's get started talking about Pompeii. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a basic history lesson, I think, about what happened at Pompeii and the surrounding cities, in case you're not terribly well versed in the history, as well as the history of Pompeii as an archaeological site. And then we're going to talk about some news stories going on having to do with the city. So, yeah. And also, if you have been following my blog, thestrugglingarchaeologist.tumblr.com, which I highly recommend you do, I just put out a news story this morning about breaking news in the Pompeii world. It's crazy nuts. Uh, and so you can find that and a lot of other fun stuff and news stories um, to whet your appetite for all things archaeology and uh, all things Jenny in the process at my blog. So go check it out. Um, if you are on Twitter, I would recommend following me on Twitter as well. You can follow the podcast's uh, Twitter feed at strugglingarch, A-R-C-H, or you can follow me personally at Jenny with a Y, McNiven, M-C-N-I-V-E-N. And I also do a lot of fun stuff there about archeology span and nerdy other things. So let's get started with a little history lesson on that amazing Roman city with two eyes in the end. It kind of makes me want to pronounce it like Pompeii because I'm going to Hawaii 
in less than a week, which I can't even barely stand. I'm so excited. Maybe I'll pronounce it Pompeii for the rest of the podcast, just because I'm a little bit obsessed with Hawaii at the moment, too. Uh, no, I probably won't do that. That was the lie. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'm being weird. I just had a big cup of coffee, and I don't usually drink coffee, so... There's a lot of caffeine in my veins right now. A little strung out on the sea, the big sea. So, okay, bring it down. Bring it back. Dial it back, McNiven. And let's get serious. Okay, I'm going to put on my teacher face right now. My teacher voice. And uh, let's delve into your history lesson today. The History of Pompeii by me and other historical sources in book and internet form. dramatic it all sounds. Uh, for our dramatic info, I would like to thank Clinton Shorter, the composer of the Pompeii soundtrack, that being his title track, Pompeii, uh, which I thought set the mood for this discussion. It's a very touching, dramatic, and sad story, one that has captured the hearts and minds of people for 2,000 years, and it continues today. Uh, I have a sneaking suspicion the world will really never be done learning about Pompeii, and it will never be done visiting it or being fascinated and uh, touched by it. So I'm glad I can continue that very long tradition with you on the podcast today. So let's talk a little bit. Um, of course, we're not only going to be talking about Pompeii. As many of you probably know, it was not the only town destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. There were several other towns or cities, unfortunately, leveled and covered in volcanic ash and mud uh, during the same eruption. They just don't get as much screen time because they weren't as big as Pompeii. There wasn't the amount of tragic loss of life. Um, and Pompeii was just the bigger city at the time. And it was much more, um, I don't know, it just had more screen cred, whatever. <laughs> you call it, so that's the one that gets all of the attention. And also, most of the archaeological investigation has been focused on the city of Pompeii itself. Although, of course, there's also been a lot of excavations at Herculaneum, so we also do know a lot about that city. But there were several others destroyed during the volcano, such as Stabiae, Opelantis, and Mount Bersaccio. Uh, so those are just some other examples of places that were heavily impacted. But we will focus on Pompeii today. So Pompeii, also you could probably turn this into a drinking game uh, where you take a shot every time I say the word Pompeii because, well, you know what? I'm not going to recommend you do that. I'm going to say it a lot and you would probably be unconscious, um, you know, like 10 minutes in. So don't do this. Do not do this thing. Uh, forget I said that. I'm being a very bad influence right now. <laughs> Back to my more responsible teacher voice, who does not encourage people to drink with reckless abandon. 
let's get back to the history of Pompeii. Alright, so it was a major Roman city located to the south of Rome in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius, a volcanic mountain, or volcano as they are often referred to. It's actually located about 8 kilometers away from Vesuvius, but of course that is close enough <laughs> to be completely obliterated by any eruptions headed their way <laughs> from the mountain. So the town had been there for a very long time before it was destroyed. It was founded in the 6th or 7th century BC and had been used as a port by many Mediterranean peoples in the first millennium. Of course, this was long before the Roman period. So before it was a Roman colony, it had been captured by the Etruscans and the Greeks at different points in history. And so it had a long history of different peoples coming in and out of it. Um, so they were kind of a mishmash at a certain point of a bunch of different cultures. And in actuality, when Rome began to rise and spread out and, you know, squash everything in sight and take control of it, uh, they actually fought against Rome in the beginning. They're in a, an area, a region known as Campania, and the entire region fought against Rome, but was, of course, <laughs> uh, squashed. <laughs> Um, the rebellion was put down by the Roman general Lucius Sulla, or Sulla, uh, and the area in Pompeii itself was made a Roman colony around between uh, 87 and 80 BC. So after it became Romanized, uh, a large portion of its population was replaced by Roman elites, and they basically spent the next hundred years developing the city. This is when a lot of its infrastructural development took place. So they got an aqueduct, an amphitheater, a palestra, which is also known as a gymnasium or gymnasium, some bathhouses, a lot of really awesome, beautiful grand villas, both inside and outside the city, a city wall to fortify it. Uh, so there was a lot of things going on in the first centuries, both BC and AD in Pompeii. And the town itself was built kind of on a grid, um, which is very similar to what you see in most Roman cities. The entire town was uh, centered around the central area known as the Forum, which was a gathering place for commerce, markets, for politics, uh, anything that was going on in the city that they wanted to involve the people in. So by the... Mid of, middle of the first century, it was actually um, a pretty bustling town. It was quite successful. It had a port um, nearby, which made it a great center for trade uh, nearby and for passing things up along the Apian Way to Rome. So it was used for a lot of different things, and it had actually become kind of this, you know, mountainside vacation hangout, you know, for the rich and fame, the rich and famous of Rome. So it's like the Hollywood Hills, kind of, I guess, with like a lot less cell phones and chihuahuas. So <laughs> anyway, so it was doing pretty well before the eruption, obviously. <laughs> and let's see, at the time, okay, so there was a couple of things going on in the decade before, before the town was, you know, stamped out by nature. There was a new emperor that year. Titus had just taken the throne. And so they were celebrating that. And at the time, there 
seem to be around 20,000 people living in Pompeii itself and in the outskirts of Pompeii. So that's actually quite a lot of people. There were a couple of towns around it like Herculaneum, you know, that were a little bit smaller, but still it was a pretty heavily populated area. Now, because it was directly next to a volcano, Pompeii was kind of used to volcanic activity such as earthquakes. They had actually had a pretty large earthquake happening in 62 AD, which actually inflicted a lot of damage to the city and caused a lot of infrastructural problems. And during this time, quite a few of its inhabitants, especially some of the richer ones who could afford to, sort of left town and fled to build in a safer place where they were like, our villas ain't gonna get destroyed by no earthquakes. And I'm sure they sounded exactly like that, except in Latin, so probably much more proper sounding. Oh uh, yeah. So they were no strangers to seismic activity, but obviously these are ancient people. In the first century, they were pretty far advanced as far as technology is concerned, but they really didn't have a hold or grasp on, you know, a lot of scientific principles and geology and things like that. So obviously they didn't really realize that they were living basically at the mouth of Mount Doom. <laughs> And that at any moment, they could all be killed instantly. Which, you know, if they had known that, obviously we wouldn't be talking about this today because no one would have lived there! Even though, to be fair, people still live there today. So I guess maybe that says something about talent-free human ignorance <laughs> overpowering all other things. But anyway... So yeah, that's kind of what's going on at the time. It's a thoroughly Roman town, so there were a lot of more elite Romans living there, and especially on the outskirts where you find a lot of the really fine villas. So it was a pretty sweet life if you were a rich folk living in around Pompeii. Not too bad. You had a nice view of a mountain, you know, like right over the over there to the northwest. And uh, I think things were generally pretty good, except for, you know, having to live as a peasant in the Roman world was not the nicest life ever, but hey, <laughs> everyone else was doing it, so not really couldn't do too much about it. So anyway, in Pompeii in 79 AD, when this occurred, you've got your everyday hustle and bustle of life going on. You've got people who are working to rebuild the damage done in the 62 quake. So there's actually still some construction going on. And then you've got the normal type of stuff for Roman life. There was, um, there was an amphitheater in town where they had gladiator shows. So exciting. You know, just go out with the fam, watch some gladiators maul each other to death and get eaten by tigers and such. Just an average Saturday afternoon for Pompeii. And of course they were in the Roman world, so they were pagans who had a polytheistic worldview. They worshipped many of the Roman gods. And so their religious life was heavily revolvent around, is that a word, revolvent? Probably not, I made it up. Uh, <laughs> it revolved heavily around worship and rituals. So you had temples and a lot of their daily lives were caught up in the worship of the gods and the rituals and especially the worship of gods like Dionysus 
which you see in a lot of the frescoes throughout town, was, uh, was a saucy god, the god of wine and debauchery, of course. So there was some crazy-ass stuff going on, I guarantee you, <laughs> at certain times in the year in the city of Pompeii. One of them being directly before the, earth or the eruption was supposed to have happened. The day before the recorded date of the eruption was the Festival of Volcania, and this celebrated the Roman god of fire, Vulcan, who is also kind of the patron saint of the volcano. Yeah, so as if that wasn't a big enough sign, probably, yeah, something weird connecting universes in that moment. <laughs> Where Vulcan was, like, not too happy, maybe? Or maybe he was really happy with how they celebrated him at the festival of Vulcania. And he decided to show them in his own special way how much he loved slash hated them all by arranging their immediate deaths. So, yes, that was, that was what, how the citizens celebrated the day before their deaths. <laughs> I'm hoping that they all had a lot of wine to drink, and even the peasants were able to let loose and party a little bit, you know, seeing as that they were about to die horrifically. <laughs> oh, man. No disrespect. I love you all, and I'm very sorry that you died horribly. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, sorry. Okay. So, yes. We're talking about the supposed day of the eruption. Let's talk about this for a second. So the day recorded in history is August the 24th, 79 AD, uh, with the eruption supposedly beginning between noon and one o'clock p.m. And I want to add that even though this is the date found in all the history books, we aren't 100% certain that it is actually true. The reason why we have this date is because of the accounts of first century historians such as Pliny the Younger. But it is actually contested by archaeologists and also by somehow a second version of Pliny's letter that points to the date being November 23rd. Archaeologists claim after excavation and examining the evidence that they're, according to the food remains recovered and the type of clothing the citizens were wearing, and I believe certain coins found at the scene, that it really doesn't point to a date in the middle of summer. It points to a date more in the fall, quote unquote, being sometime around October or November. So this actually does coincide with the date of November 23rd stated in that version of Pliny's letter. So I tend to, you know, maybe like facts uh, more than other things. So I'm actually going to go ahead and agree with archaeologists on this one that from what I've seen of the evidence, it does actually look like we're not looking at a summer eruption, but we are looking at uh, something a little bit later in the harvest season. So I'm just going to leave it at that. There's, I mean, think what you will. So now we have Pompeii sitting in the footsteps of Mount Vesuvius, along with several other cities, like I mentioned earlier. We have Herculaneum, which is in the west, and been, uh, to the south and west of Pompeii, we have Stabiae, Opelantis, and Mount Bersaccio. Now, at the time 
that afternoon uh, at 1 o'clock p.m. or whenever the eruption began, the wind was blowing from the northwest, northeast. Uh, it started, the wind was blowing to the southeast of Pompeii. And so when it erupted, that was the direction that all of the flow and the, and the ash and the magma and the things coming out of the volcano were pushed. So that was where the path of destruction lay, through the middle of all of, of those towns. And that's why they were the ones experiencing the most destruction. So when the volcano erupted, it was a major surprise to the city. They really, I mean, the warning signs were there, but they really hadn't picked up on them and they just didn't know this was coming. There had been tremors uh, reported for at least four days prior to the eruption, but they had tremors before because, you know, they lived at a volcano and it happens. So yeah, there were tremors. There were, uh, the local springs had dried up, and while we now know that this would be a warning sign for a volcanic eruption, they did not. They were ignorant of modern geology. So, of course, this prevented them from understanding the warning signs. And so, when a humongous plume of ash, smoke, pumice, and rock began spewing up into the sky from the volcano, they were like, holy expletive this is going down. And yes, so that was the beginning of the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day experienced by the Pompeians and their neighbors on the afternoon of August the 24th slash November the 23rd of 79 AD. And so you ask, how do we know all these details? Because they basically all died. There, not everybody died, obviously. There were people who escaped, and in the neighboring towns, there were many other people who escaped. So there are first-hand sources, the most famous being a letter written by Pliny the Younger, a historian, who was actually in uh, the nearby town of Mycenaeum, which is to the northwest of the volcano. So they weren't affected by it, but they could clearly see what the volcano was doing. So he described in a letter what happened that day. It was sometime later that he wrote it, but that's our best source, um, as well as there are, I think, a couple other firsthand accounts of it. Um, so yes, Pliny the Younger. Not to be confused with Pliny the Elder, his uncle, uh, who was actually killed by the Vesuvius eruption, at, uh, it, not in Pompeii, but in a nearby town called Stabiae. Pliny the Elder, <laughs> funny how names run in, Families like that, so literal, too. Pliny the Elder and his nephew Pliny the Younger were hanging out in a Mycenaeum, and uh, the Elder, Pliny, uh, or Pliny, however you say it, uh, decided to take a boat out across the water toward Pompeii and the erupting volcano, smart move, to get a better look and also perhaps to try and rescue some of the refugees who were fleeing. And he took his boat straight down to the port of Stabiae, where he was promptly killed uh, when the pyroclastic flow from the volcano reached the town and destroyed it. So, great move, Mr. Elder. Uh, well, at least his younger nephew was able to survive and tell the story for the ages. So yes, the, that is one of our main sources about what the eruption actually looked like. 
So yes, we've got a um, huge plume of smoke and ash and rock flying into the air very quickly when the eruption starts. And that actually happens for like 12 hours straight, basically. Uh, I had, you know, I don't know why I had always been under the assumption that once the volcano erupted, the pyroclastic flows, which are the like super deadly part, of the eruption that they came right away and they basically went to Pompeii straight away and people didn't really have time to flee or do anything and they were all kind of just killed instantly within a couple of minutes. Not the case in reality. Uh, In reality, they had quite a long time actually uh, in order to escape if they were going to do so. So anyway, so there's this period from about 1 p.m. to midnight when the sky, the sun has been blocked out by the ash in the sky because the plume has gone several miles into the into the air, and so it's complete darkness in Pompeii, and they are being bombarded by falling ash, and also rocks, volcanic rocks that have been you know flung flung through the air, like there's like little trebuchets inside the volcano flinging them toward the people in the village, and uh, so. They weren't really in that much danger at this point, except for from the falling rock debris, which was piling up on rooftops, um, coming in through windows, maybe hitting people on the street. But uh, besides the occasional bonk on the head or the roof collapsing from these like meteorite-type rocks flying everywhere, uh, they, there wasn't that much going on at this point that was too dangerous. So I think most people actually just went you know, took shelter in buildings, bunkered down in their houses, and just sort of waited out the storm, because they didn't know that it was going to get worse. They were like, oh, well, this kind of sucks, but it's not that bad, so I guess we're just going to wait it out and see what happens. Bad decision! Because little did they know, after midnight, there would be ridiculous amounts of magma, volcanic mud, and pyroclastic surges of hot gas ash and fire raging forward at them. (laughs) Yeah. So that's kind of when things really went to hell. Round Midnight, one of my favorite jazz songs. So yes, um, the nearby town of Herculaneum, which actually was closer to the volcano, but to the west, so it didn't get as much of the airflow in its direction. It couldn't escape the magma and the volcanic mud and the first pyroclastic surge, which came upon the town and destroyed it. And like I said, um, a lot of Herculaneum had actually already fleed, so the death count in Herculaneum is much smaller. Uh, A little bit over 300 casualties at Herculaneum that they've discovered so far, at least. They thought almost everyone had left the city, and then recently they discovered, uh, right on the beach, because it's a port town, that there were a bunch of boathouses that unfortunately the people that were not able to escape in time had fleed to and were hiding in these boathouses. And of course, the the volcano don't care about no beach house. Uh, the volcano killed them anyway. And when you're talking about the pyroclastic surges that are coming toward all of these towns, they're moving at a pace of over 100 kilometers an hour. They're extremely fast and powerful. And it's not a lot of actual physical material. You're talking about super hot gas, air, ash, and smoke. And so it, they were literally so hot that it, the, the smoke cloud didn't have to actually touch you before you died. The heat 
was traveling ahead of the pyroclastic surge for some time, and the air got so hot from the surge headed its way that it basically boiled you alive <laughs> before the surge even got to you. So, yes, that was what unfortunately happened to all the poor people hiding in the boathouses in Herculaneum. That started at midnight, around midnight, we think. And so you've got surges coming toward Pompeii. Now, the interesting thing here is that Pompeii has a very uh, a big outer wall to the north of it, and that wall was actually enough to hold off most of the pyroclastic surges coming at Pompeii throughout the entire night. So all of this debris and, and airflow is kind of being stopped up by the wall, and it builds up across the night because it keeps getting hit over and over again. And so it gets stopped, but then it builds up to the point where finally in the morning, it was at the top of the wall. And once it was at the top of the wall, the next humongous surge that came forward went right over the wall. And when that surge hit, went over the wall, it just barreled through Pompeii. And that was what finally killed every last living thing in the town and covered the entire city with a layer of ash and rock, like, I think somewhere between 20 and 70 feet high in certain places. Um, so yes, a lot of material coming down. And of course, um, the entire area was continually covered with ash and pumice from the spewing out of the volcano for hours. So it built up, it built up, it built up until everything, almost everything was covered. I think the amphitheater and some of the really, really, really big buildings were still sticking out a little bit. But so yeah, that was the end. <laughs> that was the end of everything. Well, I mean, not everything. Life did go on for people in the area who survived. Um, they just, you know, moved somewhere else. <laughs> somewhere not so deadly. Yeah. So anyway, just a couple things interesting facts and tidbits about stuff that you might have heard about Pompeii. I know, you know, we talk about it like it's a huge, huge disaster. It's so dramatic. Oh my gosh. It was um, dramatic. It was a disaster. But uh, obviously, the town was not entirely, it's not a Titanic situation. Well, actually, it is kind of a Titanic situation. A lot of people got off the Titanic. Uh, about 15, 1400 people died. And that actually might be a closer model to Pompeii as well. Yeah, there were somewhere between 12 and 20,000 uh, people living in the city. Not necessarily everyone was there on the day of the eruption, and a lot of them actually did have time to escape, like I said, from the first signs of the eruption. It was a long time <laughs> uh, before the final pyroclastic surge came and finished everyone off. So there were people fleeing. Um, I know archaeologically, we haven't discovered every single body in the city because only two-thirds of the city has actually been excavated. There's still a large portion that is still entombed in uh, the volcanic rock. Um, so we don't know what's in there yet. And also, uh, I'm sure there's probably a lot of evidence of people fleeing the city in the outskirts of the city who might have been killed by the volcano as well, but we just haven't had the capability to uh, excavate or investigate there. So we don't know too much about that. But really, we only have about a thousand bodies at the, at the moment that we know of. So it actually might be more close to the numbers of the Titanic in reality. 
Um, which, of course, you know, it's still very, very sad. But if you think, you know, that like I used to, that the moment the volcano exploded, there was like two minutes until every single person in town was asphyxiated to death, turned into a weird, ashy body <laughs> uh, statue, then not correct. Actually, most of the residents of Pompeii did actually leave or make it out alive. But, of course, there were a lot of people who didn't, so too bad. Well, other things, there are some interesting stories that come from the bodies that we find. I know one that very popular thing people talk about is the rich lady. Uh, the rich lady and the gladiator. It's a, it's a charming tale of a, an upper-class woman who was clad in expensive jewelry, and at the last moment when she thought she was going to die, she ran to the barracks where her gladiator lover was being kept, and she decided she would rather die with him than live a thousand years by herself in all of her splendor. Uh, kind of, probably not true. But anyway, archaeologists have found um, in the gladiator's barracks a bunch of gladiator bodies, and amongst the bodies is a rich woman. And a lot of people sort of, this is actually like probably the inspiration for the movie Pompeii, which I will describe to you in a little bit. It's fantastic. Uh, yes. You know, it's that tried and true tale of the woman who's too good for the guy, but they fall in love anyway, and he just messes everything up, and everybody hates him. But she loves him because he's a winner. We don't really think that's probably the case with the rich woman with the gladiators, because there was a whole bunch of them hanging out together when they died, so. Dogs, too! Hanging out with guys and dogs. Unfortunately. And um, they all died together. So, most likely cases, she was um, hiding in the barracks or taking refuge in there to try and escape the hazardous uh, environment outside. And that just happened to be where she ended up when they died. So, that's that story. There's a lot, there's so much at Pompeii. It's ridiculous. The archaeology is just friggin' insane. We've got beautiful villas. We actually know you know, houses that we know who lived there, we know what they did for a living, you know, the what was being served at the bar that day, who was in the bathhouses, you know, it's just, it's an entire world, and obviously you can't delve into every detail in an hour-long podcast. If I did, you guys would probably be stabbing your eyes out um, shortly, so <laughs> we won't go into that in much detail. But I did just want to throw those little things in because I always thought those were interesting. There's actually a point in the movie, Pompeii, where there's this other gladiator um, who's friends with the main guy. And at one point when everyone's trying to flee, he saves this, you know, sort of wealthier woman and her little girl. I thought they were going to replay the scene of the lady and the gladiators, but then they didn't. And then I think they probably all died anyway. So anyway. Uh, that's that. Why don't we talk a little bit about archaeology? The archaeology of Pompeii, also a very interesting journey. And I say journey because it's something that has been going on for hundreds of years. Pompeii is the longest continuously excavated site in the world. That's right. Now, technically, we say it was rediscovered in the 17th century. And that's kind of true, rediscovered by modern people. It's not like the day after the volcano, no one ever, ever ventured back into the area again and 
no one spoke of it, and no one thought of it, and Pompeii completely disappeared from all human knowledge and memory. Not so much. Obviously, there's a lot of people who lived there who came back. Right after, we know that there were people who were trying to gather their belongings. The site was known for some time, for, you know, a while. I'm guessing sometime, you know, maybe around the fall of the Roman Empire, people get a little distracted, maybe? Probably forgot. <laughs> Forgot about it at that point, uh, and then it was lost to the dark ages and all the depressing things that were happening then. So, anyway, so, but we don't know that much about that period. We know that in 1599, there was a brief rediscovery of, of the city by a man, an Italian architect named Domenico Fontana. He was digging an underground channel in an effort to divert the nearby river Sarno. He, during that process, came upon one of the ancient walls in Pompeii. It was covered with paintings. At that time, those type of paintings were considered hedonistic, <laughs> to say the least. I remember this is the Middle Ages and the Reformation, and so it's an extremely stuffy religious society. So, yes, Mr. Fontana was a little bit scandalized by what he saw on the walls, and he decided to cover them back up and keep going, <laughs> and just forget what his little virgin eyes had seen. Uh, so, yeah, because a lot of the frescoes in Pompeii and in the Roman world, there's a lot of nudity, there's a lot of sexual stuff going on, there's sexual themes, there's gods, ritual worship, phallic symbology. Um, there's a lot of things that were pretty groovy in the first century that were not considered so groovy during the Counter-Reformation. So this is kind of a theme in the archaeology of Pompeii. A lot of people in the coming couple hundred years couldn't handle the raunch that they were discovering and they actually tried to censor a lot of it. Which is kind of funny, but, I mean, it's realistic. What, what were they going to do? They didn't, you know, there was like an anti-classical beef going on at the time. So it was, it would be a little while before the classical era, during the 19th century, I'm going to say, really when people were, oh, wow, that stuff's pretty cool again. We're okay with all of this weird ritualistic nudity and sexual content again. So, yeah. Uh, so that started happening and then it wasn't until the 1730s and 40s when kind of more in-depth excavations, I guess you could call them, were happening. They weren't probably that scientific in nature, but at least they were um, uncovering and digging out the city. So and these were happening under the rule of uh, Charles of Bourbon, the king of Naples. He wanted a new summer palace to be built on a spot by the water outside of Naples, and so they started digging there to build it, and voila, they discovered Herculaneum. And so they discovered Herculaneum, and then there were rumors nearby that there were, you know, ancient sort of treasures coming out of the ground nearby. So architect, uh, I love this guy's name, there's an architect named Roque Joaquin de Albuquerque. De Albuquerque. <laughs> Interesting name. He began digging over Pompeii because he heard there was some ancient stuff in the ground there. And he wanted to give his king, Charles, uh, some new prestige objects to make him fancy and cool and to reinforce Naples' power in the area. So he began treasure hunting slash excavating over the city of Pompeii. 
And that was, from that point on, there was basically always someone digging up Pompeii. Now, the problem with this is that the city had been covered with volcanic ash that had hardened, and it was covering the entire city, which was keeping it hidden from the world, but it was also protecting it from the world. So during that time, the elements and the earthquakes and things that would have broken down all the structures of the city over time, had it not been encased in carbonite, oh, slash ash, <laughs> sorry, those type of things weren't a danger to the ruins until it began being destructed by people who were trying to uncover the city. They were actually removing the city's protection while they were uncovering it. It's a real double-edged sword, even today, because the preservation of the city is so amazing. It really does provide the best example in history for archaeologists to learn from about the ancient world. So excavation is still really necessary. We learn more and more and more and more every day. But by uncovering it, we also make everything there more susceptible to destruction, weathering, and theft which has always been a problem. And we'll get to a little bit more of this later when we talk about our shorty news of the day. Uh, yes. So anyway, back to archaeology stuff. There were a succession of excavators working at Pompeii after Alcubierre, and they just kept chipping away at the city. In the 1860s, there was a man named Giuseppe Fiorelli, very Italian-sounding man, I must add, Giuseppe Fiorelli, who was investigating, and he was the man who first figured out that there were bodies, or the lack of bodies, actually, left in gaps in the ash layers. And he was the person who decided that they could make casts of the bodies found in the ash layers by pouring plaster into them. Now, I don't know if you understand exactly how these... Uh, body casts that are so famous from Pompeii work, those casts are not physical remains of people. The people are gone. Their biological remains have deteriorated and for the most part they no longer exist. When they were, they died from the heat right before the ash cloud and pyroclastic flows hit them. I call it being pyroclasted to death. But they died right before that, and they were basically baked alive by the hot air from the surge. And when this happens, interesting fact, I know it's pretty common in those bodies, you see a lot of them are in the fetal position. This is because when they're being baked alive, oh man, that's awful, their bodies are basically pulled inwards toward the body because the heat is contracting all of their flexor muscles. So it's actually an involuntary response. It's not that they were just about to be, they were seconds away from being covered in a cloud of, of fire and ash, and they were, you know, shielding themselves. It's more like they were standing there, they had no idea they were about to be baked to death, and once it started, they had no control over their bodies, and their bodies just came inward like that. It's called a pugilistic attitude. And so this is the position you find most of the bodies in. So they died like that, and then they were covered by the ash cloud that came upon them shortly later, and then, you know, the ash continued to build. They were all buried together, and then it hardened. And as it hardened, it hardened around the bodies in the, you know, it filled in all the cracks, 
and over time the bodies disintegrated, but the ash had already hardened around them. So inside this the huge ash layers were the shapes, the empty shapes of the bodies that had once been there. And when Fiorelli discovered as they were excavating that he, you know, chipped this little bit of ash out and it opened into this little cavern inside the ash layer, he realized those were the shapes of bodies. And he figured out how we could capture the essence of the bodies that were there was to pour plaster into these holes and create a mold of what had been there in the negative space. And so this is why today we have all of those fantastic plaster bodies. Fantastic and sad and tragic, I must say. None more so than that of the dog. Now, don't get me started. I know it's kind of wrong, but I'm one of those people where, I mean, obviously I have empathy for everyone who died there, but I don't want to see the dogs, okay? I don't care. Many people died, fine. I just don't want to know about the dogs. It's too much. But anyway, this is when... Okay, yeah, so the 18... 63 era is when we get all those fantastic plaster bodies and we do it differently now I don't think we use plaster anymore. I think we use some type of a laminate uh, That's more clear that we put in there But it's it's amazing because this has allowed us to see in great great detail Even up to the facial expressions of the people that we have been able to plaster cast um, Which is absolutely insane. I don't think there are many, except maybe bog bodies, instances where you get that amount of detail. So, anyway, we're talking about excavation still. So, work has continued, obviously, up until today, and only more recently have the more risque sexual scenes and artifacts of Pompeii been revealed to the public. Of course, there are a lot of frescoes that have nudity and sexual content in it, and there are um, artifacts such as statuettes and things like that, probably ritual, maybe a lot of fertility and uh, worship involved, and they had really been hidden from the world by all of these really uptight <laughs> middle-aged people. Not middle-aged as in like in their 50s, like baby boomers middle-aged, I mean like renaissance middle-aged. So anyway, not too much else about excavations at the moment. I have a, another um, news story we'll talk about that uh, goes into more detail in a little bit. But first, I wanted to talk about Pompeii the movie! Haha. <laughs> oh, if you haven't had the chance to get yourself down to the theater to see this gem, I certainly recommend it. Yes, Pompeii! Pompeii, Pompeii, Pom. It's just your good old-fashioned disaster movies through and through. Uh, it's very interesting. Not always wonderful in a good way, but still very interesting. Uh, it reminded me a lot of two different movies. It's part Gladiator, part Titanic. So imagine, okay, you're in Gladiator world, and there's a lot of Gladiator stuff going on, and there's a hot Gladiator, but then it's the story of Titanic. So he falls in love with a girl who's too good for him. And she's really bummed out at her life. And there's this other really rich guy who really likes her, but she doesn't like him. And he gets kind of angry and violent about it. And he wants to steal her and, and lock her up and keep her forever. But she ain't gonna have that because she's an independent woman. And she chooses her man. Even though he's poor stuff. 
So <laughs> they fall in love and they get chased around by the mean guy who's really rich and powerful. But then, as if things weren't bad enough for them, a natural disaster decides to kill everyone around them and make them fight for their lives. And the end. There you have it. Uh, the story of Pompeii the movie. Yeah. Uh, so I went to see it and I was looking forward to it. I didn't have the greatest hopes in the world because, you know what, I feel like big blockbusters recently just haven't been that great. But it wasn't entirely disappointing. And I'll tell you why. His name is Kit Harington, okay? All of you Game of Thrones out fans out there know who I'm talking about. It's Mr. Jon Snow himself. Jon Snow. Okay, so I was so excited to see Kit Harington headlining a huge movie. I'm a big fan. He's super awesome and chill and hotter than balls. So it was pretty cool that he got to do this. Now, I'm not going to say he was stretching his acting talents far beyond the reach of Game of Thrones because literally his character was basically Jon Snow with less clothing. Uh, but he does a good job anyway. Uh, wearing less clothing and being all sad and moody and brooding and wearing less clothes. So it was a good stuff. Anyway, he plays this character. Uh, he's called the Celt is his name. And you get it set up that he's actually from Britain originally. He lives with a tribe of Celtic Celts in Britain in uh, the mid of the first century AD. And this is during the period when Rome is, you know, doing their thing and conquering. And they're actually fighting a lot of these Celtic groups in Britain. And uh, so there's war and a lot of them are being wiped out. And of course, the scenario is his entire family is killed by this Roman general, Corvus, who is our bad guy. Played by Kiefer Sutherland, might I add. Huge surprise there, was not expecting that. But anyway, he was there, and he kills Milo's mom. And so uh, he becomes a refugee kid, and then he's taken by slave traders, and he is put in London into the gladiator world, and he becomes a gladiator known as the Celt. So, you know, he's downtrodden, his, his entire people have been killed. They were horse people, like, he's like Eomer of the Celts. And so, uh, yeah, he grows up and uh, becomes a gladiator, basically. Uh, may I point out, at this point in history, uh, I figured out around the same exact time when he was a child and his family was killed by the Romans, this was the exact same era or time when Queen Boudicca was raising hell and leading her campaign against the Romans uh, through London and Londinium and all these other places in Britain and burning them and defeating the British, which was pretty awesome. Uh, I don't, they don't mention her and she, you know, that campaign is not a part of the story. But anyway, just interesting side knowledge. Queen Boudicca rules. But anyway, um, Back to the Celt, uh, he becomes a gladiator, a guy sees him in London kicking ass, he's very quick, which is his main thing, uh, he can beat everybody because he's super quick, and so he takes him to uh, Italy, back to the homeland with him, and he brings him to Pompeii, where he is put in the gladiator circuit in Pompeii. And along the way to Pompeii, he meets 
the lovely Cassia, a fine lady, the, actually the daughter of the uh, head guy in Pompeii. Uh, his name is Severus, by the way. So yeah, after I heard that, I couldn't focus for the rest of the movie. <laughs> I just kept thinking of Snape. <laughs> but anyway, yes, his, his parents are one of the most elite fam- Her parents are one of the most elite families in Pompeii. And so she, of course, is a prize to be won. And who has set his sights on her but, you guessed it, General Corvus, who is now Senator Corvus, the man who literally killed Milo's mother uh, 17, 18 years prior or whatever. So, interesting. So there we get our worlds colliding. So she meets him on the road. He helps because their horse goes lame and he kills the horse because he wants to get, you know, showing pity. And she sees him do that and she falls in love with him basically right there because he's so manly and awesome. Might I add also that Kit Harrington's first shot in this movie, he's walking into the gladiator ring. He comes out of the darkness in slow motion into the light and he's got his head down and his brooding eyes staring at you and he's half clad in leather and his abs are glistening it's ridiculous and amazing at the same time. Ah, so good. So attractive. Anyway, I swoon. Whew. Yes, uh, so enough Kit Harrington love. So, yeah, stuff happens. He's in Pompeii. More stuff with the girl. Nobody wants them to be together. They're trying to kill him. He reveals his name is Milo. Uh, in another gladiator twist, he becomes roommates with this scary-looking black gladiator who just happens to be a teddy bear at heart, and they become best friends, even though they're supposed to be, like, deadly enemies fighting each other to the death. And then they join forces to show the big bad people of Rome that they can't- they don't control them. They may take our lives, but they can never take our freedom! in a Braveheart reference. So we've got all the big ones in here now. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, the two guys are gladiator guys. Oh, the black gladiator, gladiator guy's name is Atticus. He's also the actor from The Mummy 2, the guy who did a really horrible job kidnapping Evie and Rick's son and had to take him, you know, through the train stops through all of Egypt and the kid was always, you know, giving him the old what for and showing him who's boss and he was always bumbling and funny and kind of scary at the same time it was that guy so yeah and then so they're being chased by corvus they want to be together they can't be together he's kind of a horse whisperer there's a lot going on in the middle of a, the gladiator ring when him and atticus are just about to be killed and they're fighting for their lives boom the volcano blows! Stuff in the air! It's craziness! The ground is opening up and, t and people are crumbling to the ground in the rub- in the stuff. Stadium is collapsing and Cassia's parents have both been buried in rubble. And then she in gets taken away and then he has to save himself and then he has to go save her. And then there's another evil guy who has to fight Atticus. And there's a huge chasing hole process here during the eruption. 
Now remember how I said at first there was the smoke plume, there was ash, and there were rocks flying through the air spewing out of the volcano. That's exactly how they treated it in the movie. And I was impressed by this part because at least processionally, it was fairly accurate to how it actually happened. It happened, of course, in a much shorter space of time because it's a movie and it's only an hour and a half long. So, you know, it wasn't 20 hours between the first signs of eruption and the final pyroclastic flow. It was more like two hours, but whatever. Uh, so, you know, minor detail. I'm, I'm cool with that. Uh, but yeah, they did it. There's a whole long sequence during which they're being rained down upon by ash. Everything is black because it's the cloud has stopped the sun and there are rocks raining down on them, which are hitting people on the head in the street and killing them. And they have to take shelter. And then, oh, there's a huge tidal wave that comes upon the shore too. And that kills a bunch of people. But yes, for one, I feel like there's a lot more people in the movie than there probably were in the town at this point. Two, it's just a lot quicker. Well, you know, that's how it goes. And then, you know, they fight, they fight Corvus. And this is the weird thing for me was that the entire time all this is happening, it's pretty obvious that it's really bad that they should be trying to escape. But there's like a whole chase sequence and like fighting and people like don't care that there's a volcano going off. They don't care. They're preoccupied with the love stuff, which is totally Titanic. I get it. Uh, it was just interesting. It's like the volcano was an afterthought in the background. It's like, oh yeah, by the way, this volcano is going off, but whatevs. Uh, we need to get these two to kiss. <laughs> and finally, in the end, they do kiss. I'm not going to give away the very ending because that would be mean, but they do make a break for freedom. I will leave it at that. And uh, then in the very last seconds, of course, that nasty pyroclastic flow full of fire and smoke and ash comes rumbling down toward the town, engulfing everyone in sight and killing them the moment it touches them. Which, as I said before, not quite accurate. They would have all been dead before then. But, you know, it's, it's that dramatic effect. You need that. You need the dramatic effect of everyone being engulfed in fire and flame the moment before they die. So, anyway, that was Pompeii. It had the chick who played Cassia was also the girl from Lemony Snicket and the uh, series of misfortunate events. It's that girl. Um, she was so cute in that. And now she's grown up to be like super hot. And the guy who plays Severus, her father, is Jared Harris, who many of you probably know um, from the uh, latest Sherlock Holmes series where he, oh, he plays Moriarty. That's right. And, uh, oh, he also played Hodge in the most recent and most unfortunately awful movie version of the um, Mortal Instruments series. <laughs> oh, sorry, Cassandra Clare. Not a fan. But anyway, it was a good movie. I don't think the script was very great. I think they didn't give a lot of the actors a lot to work with, especially poor Kit Harrington. I think he did a really good job with what he was given. And he did a really great job at looking super hot. But his script was, it was very simple. And his character did not have a lot of range. He was Mr. Broody Man, who falls in love but is really angry the whole time. And he broods some more. And he fights things. 
and he stabs people and that happens. So I would recommend you see it. I think look-wise, visually, it was really good. I think they're actually, like, you know what's interesting? I listened to Kit Harrington on the Nerdist podcast recently, and when he did the interview about this, he said that they were very conscious of trying to recreate the volcano accurately. And I have to say, I did think that it was fairly accurate. Besides, like I said, my issues with the timing being too quick and with people dying a little bit later than they should have. And I think perhaps there's a little bit more destruction on the grand scale of the structures in the village than, or the city than was real. But besides that, I agree with him. Um, I think it's interesting to see the volcanic aspect, even though, like I said, it's kind of background. <laughs> but still, I would recommend it. I give it one thumb up, one and a half. Why not? And it has Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it was good. Do it. Why not? Why not? And that's all I have to say about Pompeii, the movie. And now, on to some very quick, because we're already at an hour, shorty news. And in this week's shorty news, a story just coming out in Reuters I read yesterday uh, by author James McKenzie. The title of the article is Thieves Steal Section of Fresco from Pompeii. Yes, it has happened again, folks. Pompeii has fallen victim to the relentless onslaught of robbers, basically. Treasure hunters have broken into Pompeii, come into a house that had been excavated and was not open to the public, uh, the house of Neptune and Amphitrite, which was a, is a gorgeous, gorgeous house. It has amazing frescoes on the walls featuring the gods, which are just breathtaking. And unfortunately, the goddess Artemis fresco did have a piece of it chipped off and stolen just last week. This is nothing new to Pompeii or any, I would add, of the world's greatest heritage sites. Um, especially as I, if you listen to my Civil War episode, we have a lot of problems here in America with Civil War sites. But uh, looting, treasure hunting, and those type of activities happen all around the world, and I think the more famous and ancient the site, unfortunately, the longer people have been stealing from it, and the more with more vigor have they been trying to steal from it. So this is not anything new to Pompeii, but it is a very sad um, occurrence. So this actually comes on the heels of another incident at Pompeii recently. They had some extremely heavy rains, and this caused part of one of the Pompeii walls to collapse. Not a new occurrence at Pompeii either, unfortunately. The Italian government has been criticized heavily for their lack of maintenance at Pompeii. The site actually is not, has not been very well taken care of historically. And so it doesn't have a, the infrastructure right now is falling victim to damage from the elements and water damage seems to be a huge problem at Pompeii. In 2010, the Scola Armatorum, the House of the Gladiators, collapsed as well. And this was a really impressive structure. It was not open to the public, but you could see it from the public areas. And it also collapsed due to water damage. And basically since that happened, Italy has been in hot water over these occurrences and people are basically shouting and screaming and very upset because why can't they get their stuff together and, you know, protect one of the world's greatest cultural heritage treasures? So, yeah, 
it's a it's a big responsibility, and they are, have so far shown that they are not uh, up to the task. So uh, at the moment, Cultural Minister Dario Francini has promised to get more maintenance done on the site and to take better care of it so that unfortunate uh, circumstances like damage from the elements and theft stops, you know, happening <laughs> so much. Enough with the bad and the falling and the stealing and the stuff. We just want the happy and the nice and the safe and the taken care of and the education and the good and the memories and the awesome. So I think if we just put that last section like in a letter and mail it to them, I think that'd probably be a great argument and that they would be like, oh, wow, well, why didn't anybody put it like that before? <laughs> Let's get our stuff together, guys. Let's save Pompeii! <laughs> and speaking of saving Pompeii, I mentioned earlier there's an article in the March-April issue of Archaeology Magazine on Pompeii. It's called Pompeii's Villa of the Mysteries. And it's a really interesting read by Jarrett A. Lobel. And it's basically about this one villa right outside of Pompeii that has been dubbed the Villa of the Mysteries which is an amazing house that I'm sure very rich people owned at one point in time before Pompeii was destroyed. It's got, again, awesome, awesome, awesome frescoes all over the walls, these gorgeous paintings. And yeah, they're trying to preserve them. That's what the whole article is about. It's about how uh, archaeologists are now trying some new high-tech methods of conservation on the artwork, uh, we used to actually remove them from the walls and take them somewhere else where we could work on them. And now we've decided we don't want to do that anymore. They're going to stay right where they are. And we're, they're using uh, technology like lasers and uh, resin and different uh, solvent methods to clean them and nurse them back to health since they have been very sick for the last 2,000 years. So, yes, that's also a good article. Check it out. The pictures of the Villa of the Mysteries are awesome. And, you know, if you have the internet, you can just look it up. <laughs> In fact, there are so many wonderful uh, online sources on Pompeii. I recommend you go. There's interactive sites uh, where you can actually go room through room in some of these houses. You can walk down the streets of Pompeii, which now that they've been uncovered are insanely amazing. It's literally like you're standing in 79 AD. You can see every single cobblestone. This is the magic of archaeology. We're like, we're like the wizards of the past. Yes. So definitely check out some in, uh, amazing interactive sources on the internet. And there's, of course, tons of books and awesome stuff as well. Check out my blog, and I will be sure to put some pictures and stories up for you there as well, linking to today's episode. That's it for Shorty News. That's also it for this podcast, because after we get through an hour, I feel like you're probably getting pretty antsy in there. So I'm going to shut us down for the night, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening. Everyone who's stuck with me for the past 13 episodes, it's been super, super fun. And I've had an amazing time making them, and I'm going to keep making them. And I'm just so glad that you guys are enjoying it too, and that I have a platform to do what I do. So thank you, thank you, thank you. 
And in some quick exciting news, uh, Player.fm, which is an online podcast uh, podcasting site, also an app, a podcasting app, has named the Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty one of the top six archaeology podcasts of 2014. So thank you to Player.fm. I'm very happy to be amongst such wonderful company. Go to iTunes, guys, and check out some of the other top archaeology podcasts out there. There's some really great ones. And enjoy me and everybody else, but mostly me. Or I will come to your homes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> all right, everybody. Cheers to you all. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy spring. I love you all. And I will see you anon. Goodbye. Until tomorrow. I sit. Okay, I'm going to stop singing now. Bye. Oh, I made it so close to not singing the entire episode, and then I went and ruined it, and I had so many chances. I talked about Game of Thrones forever, and I didn't even try and sing the Game of Thrones theme song, which I'm obsessed with. Or I didn't sing the jazz song around midnight I was talking about. I mean, I held out. I tried, people. I'm just not strong enough. I'm not strong enough. When in doubt, I will always sing.